Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Fundamentals Podcast. My name is Jack, and I'm here with Jeff, and we are really excited to continue our dive into the book of Hebrews. Hopefully, you've been able to journey with us uh, as we are about to begin our seventh week in the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews. But before we dive into that, uh, Jeff, let the people know, how are you doing today? Doing great. Just uh, enjoying the nice cool weather in Phoenix. It's only 82 degrees currently, which is amazing for Phoenix. Hey, that is kind of a delight. I remember last time I was out there, just the whole thing was in triple digits the whole week and <laughs> nobody even blinked because that's just how, how they roll out there. Thankfully, uh, yeah. Fort Myers, we've been doing just fine uh, in that department as well. Not too crazy hot and not too rainy yet. We'll get into that season here soon, uh, but we'll enjoy it while it lasts. Uh, and, and so just to kind of recap a little bit of, of where we've uh, been going through the first six chapters of the book, in case you've missed any, uh, the uh, author is really highlighting the supremacy of Christ throughout this. And he's writing to an audience of people that um, would understand because uh, they were uh, raised in the faith. Uh, they grew up in it. So as he kind of is talking, it's a little bit different than perhaps how uh, some of the other uh, books in the New Testament might read. But again, he is writing to a specific people that would understand this. Um, and so we'll try to break some of those things down. And thankfully, Jeff will, will help us uh, on that and understand a little bit more of that, that context and the depth to it. But throughout all this chapter, again, the author is focusing everything on Christ and is focusing on just what his sacrifice means for us. And he's kind of imploring us to be in awe of how great he is and also uh, how we can live our lives according uh, to how Jesus has called us. And so that's kind of what brings us here a little bit. And before we dive into chapter seven, uh, Jeff, would you mind giving us kind of a little bit of uh, what we're about to get into? Yeah, so two chapters ago, I think, in uh, Hebrews 5, we talked a little bit about Melchizedek and kind of the role he's going to serve uh, in the book of Hebrews and um, what the type means and how it reflects to Christ. And so we're going to get a lot more of that. Uh, this whole chapter is really about uh, who Melchizedek was, how he interacted with Abraham, and, and what that means for how Christ serves as a high priest for us. So we'll get into that, uh, and we'll kind of go back over what we talked about uh, two chapters ago, but uh, a lot of Melchizedek in this chapter. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And and what's kind of fun to, as we get into this, again, some of it might seem a little weird, but the cool part is as we study God's word, we find that it is rich. Uh, and it's not necessarily as hard as we think. And thankfully, we have had so many people over the years uh, since the scriptures have been around, very smart people that have devoted their lives to understanding uh, and we're able to learn from them. We don't have to start from scratch. We have these tools to really dive into it. So hopefully, uh, when we finish, uh, we all can learn something here. So let's go ahead and read the first two verses of chapter seven. Uh, and it starts with this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham uh, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Yeah, so this event is really, it's from Genesis 14, and it's a uh, what happens is these four kings, a confederation of kings, basically uh, get together and they attack Sodom and Gomorrah and they uh, are triumphant in their battle and they, they carry away kind of the goods of those two cities and, and some of the people of those cities and Lot is included in that. And Lot is 
the son of Abraham's brother, so his nephew. Mm -hmm. And so Abraham raises up uh, a group of about 318 men, and he goes and takes back his nephew. And so the slaughter of kings is Abraham defeated their armies and those kings. And then it says that uh, upon his return, if we look in Genesis 14, it says upon his return, he is met by Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And that's in parentheses. Verse 19 from Genesis 14 says, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So um, two podcasts ago, I think it was now, we talked about the meaning of the name Melchizedek and it's king of righteousness. Those are the, the two root words of that one conjoined word. And he's the king of Salem. And the word Salem comes from Shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. And so he is this king of righteousness and this king of peace. And he is this high priest to God most high, which is, uh, um, it is Yahweh before he has revealed himself to Israel exclusively through that covenantal relationship and through Moses. Mm -hmm. This is worship of the one true God, the same God that we worship pre-Israel. And so it precedes even Abraham. And that's going to be kind of important to what we talk about later on. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the question kind of becomes, why did Abraham pay a tithe to Melchizedek? What does that mean? And, and how does it apply to what we're reading here in Hebrews? And we'll get into that in a second, but I think it's worth going on to verses three. And yeah, let's just look at verse three. Absolutely. Uh, so verse three, uh, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues uh, a priest forever. Yeah. So as you can probably guess, this is once again, establishing um, this kind of type that points to Jesus Christ. And that's what Melchizedek is. Mm -hmm. uh, the phrase, neither beginning of days nor end of light, does not mean that Melchizedek is some kind of immortal being and that uh, he's still walking around the earth today. That's not what you should take away from it. It's, it. What it's actually saying is we don't know his lineage. We don't know his genealogy. We don't have a history of him. Um, and so we can't ascribe the beginning of his days nor the end of his life. And... Uh, and then finally, at the end there, it says he continues a priest forever. Uh, really, our only interaction with Melchizedek is as this king and as this high priest. And so the first encounter we have with him, he's the high priest of God Most High. The last encounter we have with him, he's still the high priest of God Most High. So in terms of the narrative function of the story of Scripture, he continues a priest forever. And, and his priesthood is unending in the sense that we don't see a conclusive end to his story, to his narrative. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm kind of getting it. And it kind of brings it to my mind. It's not perfect, but just the idea of kind of like once a Marine, always a Marine type thing where it's just, it's not that they live forever or always serving the exact same context. But again, as you mentioned here, the only exposure we have to him is as the high priest. And that, yeah. that doesn't change. And really his, I mean, his importance uh, is as this, king and high priest and that's mm -hmm. that's why he's included in this narrative for the role that he serves in connecting god most high and the blessing that he gives to abraham to the continued story of abraham and and his descendants so that's his role that's his importance in this story uh but then we start to see these 
tying into the person and the character of Jesus Christ. And I want to introduce a term that's used in theology called Christophany. And it's what they call an appearance of Christ on earth uh, prior to the incarnation. The problem with Christophany is that we can't really say with certainty that any event in the Old Testament is an example of Christophany. So you can look at Genesis 32, for example, and you can think, well, God wrestles with uh, someone that looks a lot like a man. And then we find out that it is God. So is that Jesus Christ uh, pre-incarnation wrestling with Jacob? We know it's God, but we, it's, it's hard to say. It doesn't put it in those terms. So to say mm. that is the incarnate Christ who came down, wrestled with Jacob, and then ascended back into the heavenly realm. It's just we can speculate, and it, it seems like a good solution to the problem, but there's no real way to say from Scripture that we have conclusive evidence that that's what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And then some people would argue really any instance of the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ. Again, it makes sense, and I, I don't have any problem with people believing that the angel of the Lord is the Christ pre-incarnate, but nothing in scripture tells us explicitly that's what's happening there. And then finally, people really ascribe any time God takes on a human form uh, as being Christophany. But again, as I've said a couple times now, we just don't, we don't have anything from scripture that lays it out that explicitly. Yeah. And and the important thing to note is like Jacob wrestled with God, like that happened. Was it, was it Jesus coming before or was it not Jesus absolutely had a hand in, in that in some way or form kind of perhaps even beyond our understanding and definitely not, it's not included in the scriptures that plainly for us to say one way or the other. It's also important to to remember that uh, even if Jesus didn't come to earth in these kind of forms before time, like Jesus existed before all of time. It's not that it's the whole begotten, not made that we, that the author of Hebrews even has been kind of covering uh, in this. So the important thing to know is God was at work in those instances and it's not necessarily um, beneficial, harmful, whichever way, if it becomes a sticking point, that's when it can become harmful, but it's not. Yeah. And the language we use is really dictated by their lack of revelation, right? Mm -hmm. So they didn't know about, the Christ. They didn't, Jacob didn't know about Jesus Christ. So how could he put into words what he was witnessing in a way that we could uh, properly articulate? So we are, we are limited in a sense by what they were limited to, Mm -hmm. but it it really, I'm not sure it matters all that much. It's really interesting to talk about. um, And it's, it's usually a source of a lot of discussion and debate. Yeah, and it can be something uh, fun to to talk talk about, throw around a little bit. But that's not the only way that we see God uh, plainly on earth in the Old Testament. Do you want to uh, speak to the other kind of appearances that happen as well? Yeah, so there's uh, Christophany, which is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And there's Theophany, which is anytime God makes himself uh, manifestly observable by human capabilities. So uh, the Lord showing up at Abram's home, right, with the angels. Uh, the burning bush is an example of that. Moses can see the bush. God speaks through the bush. Uh, the covenant meal appearance, we, we read that the elders of Israel ate and saw God. Hmm. What does that mean? They didn't really feel a need to tell us. So what can we say other than they did and we believe it? And so that's the truth. And then we have the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. These are all theophanies, but not every theophany is a Christophany. And, and we really don't have the means to say 
what is and isn't Christophany. So you learned a couple new terms, but they're really not going to be all that helpful to you in your reading of scripture. Feel free to in, in, impress your friends. Right. Well, probably not the first words to use as you're sharing yeah. Christ with somebody for the first time, but you know. Yeah. The they know. are almost entirely useless in evangelistic purposes. <laughs> but uh, so I, I guess the point I'm making in all of this is that some people want to call Melchizedek Christophany, this king of righteousness, this king of peace, this high priest to God most high, which we know Christ now serves in that role for us. These are all things that uh, resemble the son of God, right? And I want to go back to verse three. Mm -hmm. Melchizedek resembles the son of God because the son of God has been with God from the very beginning, from before the beginning. He has existed as God has existed, which is eternally. So Melchizedek resembles Christ, not the other way around. Christ doesn't resemble Melchizedek. And that's important about how we talk about the power of the only son of God. Yeah. Uh, and, and the funny way that I like to think about this as we were chatting about it before is this whole idea. Again, Jeff and I have been enjoying to watch the last dance together, uh, the Michael Jordan documentary. And you think about it like um, Kobe Bryant resembles Michael Jordan. Not that Michael Jordan resembles Kobe Bryant. It's, it's Michael right. Jordan came first. His greatness was there. And Kobe was able to, to do the things because of Jordan, but you, you can't flip flop him around. So in, in this case, it's all the great pillars of faith. They may resemble Jesus, but they are not him. Yeah, and, it, and these types, these shadows are so uh, prevalent in this book of Hebrews that it, it, it's weird to me to think that this is anything other than more of the same literary devices that the author has been using for the entire book. So I would argue that Melchizedek is um, a shadow of Christ. He... he uh, reveals to us in a limited way the fuller truths of who Christ is. He is a king of peace. Uh, well, Christ is the king of peace. He is the king of righteousness and the high priest to God most high. But really, this is more important about it establishing um, the nature of Christ's priesthood apart from the Mosaic Covenant. And finally, just the one last little Greek word that I want to introduce to you, this idea of resembling the Son of God, it comes from aphomoiomenos, uh, I am sure I mispronounced that. And it really just means to approximate and, and to make similar. So Melchizedek approximates, in a sense, Christ in the Old Testament. So verse four. Go yeah, ahead, do we want to do this next in a, in a chunk here? Uh, yeah, so this is we're going to go yeah. verses uh, four through ten. So a nice little chunk. Hopefully you're able to read along. Uh, again, we use the ESV translation. Uh, so starting verse four, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch gave a 10th of the spoils and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers, though these also are descendant from Abraham, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. 
Yeah, so you read verses 4 through 10, and you might be tempted to think, well, this is a bunch of nonsense. What am I supposed to get out of it? So, so let's just try to go as deliberately and slowly through it as we can. So after Abraham has killed these kings, he takes back Lot, and then he's met by Melchizedek. And Abraham is the one who is called by God, and God gives promises to Abraham. And really the promise is that through Abraham, he will bless the nations of the world, and he will raise up a great nation that is this blessing. And Jesus comes from that blessing, right? But Abraham is not the only one worshiping the true God at this time. And in fact, before Abraham knew the true God, he worshiped other gods. It says he, comes, he came from a family that worshiped other gods, and God calls him out of that. So Abraham is a sojourner. He's a traveler, and that's really what the, the name Hebrews means. That's, that's what it means, uh, a person that passes from one place to another. And so he is this Hebrew making his way through other people's lands. And so now he's passing through Melchizedek's land. And it says that Melchizedek comes to meet him in Genesis 14, and he blesses him in the name of this one true God. So after that, Abraham, is he receives the blessing, and he willingly gives uh, a payment, a, a tithe, if you want to say that, which just happens to be 10%. I, I, what I'm saying is that's not uh, supposed to be some kind of tie to the Mosaic understanding of tithing a tenth. Uh, he just happens to give 10% of the spoils to Melchizedek. Um, so the main point is that Abraham, who is in this passage, according to the Hebrews author, he's representing this greater picture of what Israel is. He is paying a tithe to Melchizedek. And that's kind of what these last couple of verses in this chunk are getting at. It's this idea that the inferior, Abraham, who is a sojourner, is being blessed by a king. And he's being blessed by a king priest. And so he's paying tribute now to that priest king. So it is with the Mosaic priesthood. It is inferior and it pays tribute to the eternal priesthood of Christ. So the author is saying this new priesthood, which Christ has established, is far beyond the Mosaic priesthood. And he'll get into that even more. So when it says, uh, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, pays tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor. It's being literal. Uh, like Abraham, because he paid a tithe before uh, his ancestry bore fruit through the line of Levi, that means uh, his descendants in a way they are tethered to that same tithe. So Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, and everyone who comes after him, in a sense, pays tithes to Melchizedek. It's kind of hard to follow, but uh, in the loin means literally coming from his loins. They are the fruit of his loins. And so I don't know if that clarifies it at all or if it makes it a little more clear. Yeah, I, I mean, it is kind of good to break it down because like, like we said before, and, and we know that the author of uh, this book of Hebrews was writing to a people that would understand this history. They might not know it yet quite in the way that it's being explained, but the, these people, uh, Abraham and Melchizedek, they would understand what was getting at and the significance of what was being talked about here. And for us, really, I mean, to put it as, as simply as possible, the author here is, again, trying to reorder kind of uh, what our priorities are, what our hierarchy is. And uh, surprise, surprise, Jesus comes out on top. And he's really right. kind of outlining 
why that is so that we can understand all the, the, the beauty truly of God's plan of how it all worked and all came together, like this master plan that he had. But in, in simplest terms, it's that hierarchy that puts Jesus way and above and beyond there up at the top. Yep. So this new order that is like Melchizedek in the sense that there is no perceivable end to it, but with Christ, there is literally no end to it, uh, is, is far above the order of Aaron and the Levites and, and that line of priesthood. And so Jesus is our priestly king forever and for all people, not just for the Jews, not just for the Gentiles, for all people forever. Um, and I, I think that is probably all I want to say on that chunk if we want to go on to verse 11. Yeah, so we have a, another chunk here that we're going to explore, and this will be 11 through 17. So again, hopefully you're able to read along with us and, and follow in that way, uh, but starting at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of uh, whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descendant from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witness of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. So um, perfection is a, a complete following of the law of God that was given to uh, the people of Israel, which we know they could never accomplish. And that's really why the uh, Mosaic law had this element of uh, sacrifice and, and uh, making sacrifices to Yahweh and the priest being an intercessor. So perfection under the law was not possible. And the Levitical priests themselves were people of sin. So they made um, sacrifices for themselves and for the people. So it's kind of saying, uh, it's a little hard to explain this, but um, we need this greater priesthood because the Mosaic covenant could not uh, perfectly, we could not perfectly achieve perfection under the Mosaic covenant. So we needed someone who achieved it, completed it, and far exceeded it, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. So this new priesthood now means there's a new law for us. There's a new work that we do under this new law. And I'm using law in a pretty broad sense here. If you look at John 6, 29, uh, the crowd asked Jesus, they then inquired, what must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus replied, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. First John 3, 23 puts it this way, and this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we should love one another just as he commanded us. So by believing in the one whom God sent and being baptized and finding life in the person of Jesus Christ, we are made perfect in a way that our physical works could never accomplish. So we are perfect because Christ is perfect. We're perfect because we abide in the one whom God sent from eternity for us. So it's not 
It's saying that the things we hope to achieve under the Mosaic Covenant were never really even achievable in the first place. And that's why we had things built into it in which priests could make sacrifice. So Jesus had to step in and -hmm. Jesus did step in. God provided a solution through Jesus Christ. And it's now through the power of God and the son from eternity that this new priesthood rests on his power and his power alone, not the heritage of a line of priests, not uh, any kind of institution anything like that. It rests solely on the power of God in his indestructible life, especially evident through Jesus Christ. Yeah. And we get that, that call that, that he is the vine. We are the branches. We get to abide. We get to remain in him. That is what it's all about. And uh, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit more about the law here in a second as we continue, but it's just important to note when we're focusing on this fact that we as human beings and them then could not fulfill the law, couldn't uh, uphold the law. This wasn't like some crooked, unfair, uh, legalistic system that was set up against the man wasn't trying to hold people down. Uh, but it was actually God's good and gracious law that was given that the people fell short of. And so it's important to note that God isn't necessary, not that you were saying this in any way, Jeff, but it's important to note that God's not to blame for the fact that people couldn't uphold the, that law. Right. Of course not. No. And it, it was, it was a distinguisher, right? It kind of, it stated when they lived this way, that they were God's people. And it was a way they could know they had peace with God by living within the law. And it was a way for them to have a good life in and amongst each other. So Mm -hmm. the 10 commandments are just a really good way to live. And that's, so the law has, you have to have a nuance of understanding when you talk about the law. For one thing, like we'll see in this next chapter, it is convicting in a sense, because we recognize our inability to perfectly keep God's law. But we also thank God that he has given such a good law to begin with and that he is God that has chosen to call us out of our former way of life and give us a better way to live. Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and take a look at verses 18 and 19 here. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Yeah. So it made nothing perfect in the sense that it, the law serves as a mirror, right? Luther talks about three uses of the law. One of those is a mirror in which it shows us that we are flawed and that we have sin and that we do not keep God's law perfectly. And so we have a need for a perfect savior. Uh, it's also a guide teaches us how we should live. And uh, so God, himself gave us this new means and that's the only way this would have been possible for a perfect God to step into time and space and to do what we were unable to do. That's how God laid it out. And that's how God accomplished it. So Jesus is this new means by which we draw close to the father. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just, the, I always love that use of, of uh, the law as a mirror. Because again, even right now, as I got my scruffy little almost beard going on, like I might feel that it's okay, think everything's fine. And then I look in the mirror and I'm like, yikes, that's not necessarily as good as I thought it was. And that's what the law does. It can kind of smack us and, and, and wake us up uh, to the things that are kind of going wrong. But the law doesn't then make you righteous or to do it. But it, it gives you that guidance so you can deal with reality. You can deal with truth. And as, Jesus, uh, as Jeff mentioned, it's to point us back to Jesus because that's how we draw close to God. It's not by suddenly, let me fix everything. It's, it's I get to look at myself and my sin and I say, man, I need Jesus. 
So verse 20, if you want, Jack. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do we want to do that little chunk here or um, you want just uh, 21 through 22? Yeah, yeah. Let's, go, let's go ahead and do that. Uh, and so here we have verse 20. And it was with, uh, sorry, and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Yeah, so the, the citation there is from Psalm 110. And that's where we get this, uh, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And again, it's, it's this idea that the Aaronic priesthood was passed down from the family of Levi, starting with Aaron. Um, and Jesus is a priest who is promised by God the Father for all people. And there's one priest. It doesn't get passed down from Jesus to other people. It starts with Jesus and it ends with Jesus in the same way that uh, Melchizedek was the high priest of God most high. The first time we encountered him and the last time we encountered him, it's just, it's the, that's why Melchizedek is so important to the understanding of this. Jesus is a priest forever in the same way that in the narrative, Melchizedek was only ever the high priest of God most high. Mm -hmm. So we don't ever, we don't ever encounter another God most high in the narrative of scripture. And so we will never in a greater type have another high priest like Jesus through eternity. Yeah. And you even think about too the some of the the priests that came from the the Levites weren't necessarily the best kind of priests that you would want. They kind of were born right. into it, and uh, so you kind of see that distinguish of the the importance and the in the value um, there again. Kind of you see the author making those important distinctions. Right, and that this idea in twenty two this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. If you've ever uh, when you were a kid you get an apartment and your parents co-sign the lease. That's really the Greek word is, is to co-sign. And it's this idea that God only grants this new covenant because Jesus's name <laughs> is on the document. Yeah. That is such a good, good way to, to think about it. That's awesome. Right. Oh man, we can't buy it. Jesus could. Uh, so here we go. Looking at it. Uh, verse 23 through 28 here. I believe that ends the chapter. Let's go ahead and get this chunk. So, uh, starts with the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priestly uh, priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then uh, for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." You know, I'm not really sure what more I can add to that. That part, at least to me, reads pretty clearly. Uh, again, it's just saying what we said before. Jesus is the high priest uh, yesterday, today, and forever. And he is our high priest. And he is able to save to the uttermost, meaning he's able to save all people. Uh, he's not restricted in his ability uh, 
or by ethnic heritage or by any factor that we might come up with, Jesus can save to the uttermost. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those who draw near to God through him. And so he is always making intercession for us and there's, he was perfect. So there was no need for him to make a sacrifice for himself. Instead, his sacrifice is for all mankind. And that's a, kind of a a crazy thought that the high priest is also the sacrifice. And you can imagine as the people who are reading Hebrews are taking this in, the imagery that is coming to mind for them as people who understand the traditions and the rituals and the sacrificial system of the old covenant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just love highlighting this part that like, I mean, he has no need to offer these sacrifices. He's not, like Jesus did not have to do what he did. He wasn't forced into this. He wasn't like, well, I'm going to save myself and coincidentally save everybody else. Jesus was good. He was fine. He didn't even have to come down from heaven. Like all this, we, uh, we cannot uh, overstate that he did this purely out of his love for you is why he did all the things that he did. There was no, there's no need in it. Like now I know we have some people that are, that have been graciously braving the front lines to help so many. Uh, and then some people have said, oh, they, well, they're doing it because they need the money or they need this. And well, kind of both things could be true for them as human beings that they want to help and they need that income. Uh, for Jesus, there was none of that need. It was all out of his love and self-sacrifice for us. Yep. I don't think I have anything more to add other than the freedom you have in Christ is for eternity. Amen. That's a great, great thought to end it on. Uh, so everybody, I hope you enjoyed this week as we got through uh, chapter seven. Always feel free to, to reach out with thoughts or questions on any of this kind of stuff. I mean, we're exploring this alongside with you and we're having fun and, and hope you are too. And we'll be back uh, next week with chapter eight. So God bless everyone. God bless you.